The crushing brutality of the cross gave way to dumbfounding bewilderment. Jesus was dead. Then, three days later, he showed up. After Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit poured out on the early church and began his journey across the oceans and across the millennia to collide with you as you sit in this room today. The gospel crossed mountains, the gospel crossed cultures, the gospel crossed hills, valleys, and what you do when you leave this theater carries the story further. The book of Acts began on the other side of the mountains to our east. It continues in your heart, and its next chapter begins on the sidewalk outside. This is the book of Acts. Would you consider the reasons that you might have for as a Christian, particularly, not bringing up the gospel, not letting it be known that you're a Christian, not seeing God bring revival to our city. List in your mind your personal inventory of the reasons why I, I can't be one of those people who brings up the gospel to other people because I made these mistakes in my past. I, I can't bring up the gospel to these other people because I'm a disgrace in these ways. I can't bring up the gospel to other people because I, I, don't, I don't have a theology degree. I don't even know if my doctrine's correct. I can't bring up the gospel with other people because frankly, I'm just afraid to. I'm afraid of what will happen. I'm afraid I'll lose my good standing in my company. Like when I type up on the fact that I'm, I'm a Christian on Facebook, I might as well type up a resignation letter along with it. I actually met Christians like that in Seattle who feel that way. Would you just take an inventory of the reasons that you might have for not sharing your faith and would you find them reflected in the people God uses in Acts 18? We've arrived here in Paul's missionary journey sequence what we covered last week took us through chapter 16, in which God guided them westward across the northern, uh, the northern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Now in today's text, it's going to move us around the Aegean Sea. All right? He moves us westward across uh, over to Macedonia in chapter 16. In chapter 17, covered by our curriculum and by our devotions, Got, uh, got us closer to here, and now in today's text, we're going to do a lap around the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea is sort of this indentation at the northwest corner of the Mediterranean Sea. So the Mediterranean Sea is larger. The Aegean Sea is off the edge of the Mediterranean, and we're going to make a lap around it. It arrives in the city of Corinth, and in this corner of the Aegean Sea is this small isthmus, this small plot of land that, that connects the Mediterranean Sea to the waters around it. And it's called the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It was the home to the Isthmian Games, which the Olympics just finished up last night. The Isthmian Games were roughly on par with the Olympic Games at one point, and they were hosted in Corinth. This small peninsula, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, was short enough that you could put your ship on rollers or sliders and you could actually move it across land. It was, it was time consuming, but far less time consuming than the total of 250 nautical miles it took to go around the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the peninsula. 
And as you were moving your ship across land, as you were rolling it over rollers, sliding it on sliders, you would stop in Corinth. And so you had this trade city, the hub of business, and you had people who were selling goods from all over the world, and they were all meeting in this one place at this one time. Now, this tended to become the Las Vegas of its day. Because as men at sea would arrive at port and their ship would be not only docked, but even put up on dry land to drag across this peninsula, eventually Emperor Nero would actually start a canal. That canal would not be finished until the 19th century. But in the meantime, Corinth became the Las Vegas of its day because traders would stop in and they would be there just for a short time and then they would leave. They would seemingly check their morals at the door, pick them back up, or at least some of them, before getting back on board and the ship back, uh, back out to sea. It even led to a term to Corinthianize, was to gradually acquiesce to moral decay and relativism. It was to gradually just become more and more depraved. Like the name of the city was synonymous with debauchery. It even, came, it even became a verb. If you add the suffix eyes onto something and it has a bad connotation, it gives you a lot of context for the city of Corinth. Now, the city of Corinth was also the home to a church that Paul plants in this text. And in his letter specifically to the church at Corinth, right, there, there were two, possibly three of these letters. The, the, the lost epistle is possibly the middle of the three letters that were written to the, the church at Corinth. You could see some of the specific sins named. One of, the, one of the causes of the debauchery that would take place in the city of Corinth was the worship of Aphrodite. There were about a thousand temple prostitutes that would come up to kind of the, the highlands of the city, the large plateau, and this is where they would come out and they would sell their services all in the name of religion. All right, does anybody here plan to start a false religion? Is that on anybody's calendar? One or two of you? All right, so here's a tip from the Corinthians. If you make worship one of those things that people want to do in their sin nature anyway, you will always have a packed house and you'll never have a budget shortage. That's the way the worship of Aphrodite went. It just turned prostitution into worship. And Corinth was the only ancient city this way. In fact, we're also gonna visit Ephesus in today's text and worship of, uh, the, the, the worship at the temple of Artemis involved similar corruption. This was the backdrop for the ministry that's taking place here. So imagine the city, imagine the setting. It's gonna be a stretch for you, but just think about it. It's a city where people from all over the world come and do business, a city known that when some sort of moral revolution comes along, they just acquiesce to it and act like they were that way all along, and they become more and more depraved. And eventually, their, their depravity becomes legislated. All right, this, was, this is similar to not only Seattle, but other cities in the U.S. today, where we're not guided by principles, we're guided by acquiescence. And politicians seize on the opportunity to either virtue signal or just appeal to the carnal desires of their constituents by just legislating whatever it is that they want. And this was Corinth. We actually have a lot in common with Corinth. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, some of the particular sins that Paul names were part of the worship of Aphrodite. And we in Seattle have a lot in common with the sins of Corinth. So it seems bleak, right? It seems incredibly lost. God's going to work in the city of Corinth. The church is going to grow. 
They're going to struggle moving forward with their own sense of struggling to, to, to let go of some of their previous sins they had before they became Christians. And there were times when the church would sometimes look exactly like the world and that they would even corrupt things like communion was an opportunity to just get utterly wasted. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians has to write to correct that. They would even tolerate sins, even including incest, where even the Gentiles, even the pagan people of Corinth were like, that's gross. Why don't you call that out? And Paul confronts them for not actually exercising church discipline, saying like, have the sinner come forward and confess. If they don't repent, you start over again with the gospel. You treat them like you would a non-believer. What do we do with non-believers? We share the gospel. We start all over again. And so the city of Corinth was... Corinthianized in the original sense of the word. It's the namesake for the term. It had acquiesced its way into incredible, incredible depravity. And the church would struggle with things that other churches wouldn't really struggle with. First Corinthians is a very confrontational letter at times. And Paul speaks with the Corinthian church in harsher tones than he does with other churches that he helped plant. But that's because their setting was so incredibly, incredibly lost that it required more direct confrontation. And in that city, you would think that the church wouldn't survive, but this church will grow. God will use this church. God would even use the letters that he wrote to the Corinthian church to help shape church polity and doctrine. When we get to 1 Corinthians, you're gonna see Paul, while he's correcting this church that gets planted in this chapter, also answer some really pressing theological questions that we're gonna address in our study plan early next year. So this is the setting, okay, next year when we start studying 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and I say, do you remember back when we studied Acts 18? You'll be like, aha, that's right. Well, this is that day that you're going to recall. Are you ready? Okay, mental photograph. All right, Acts 18. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath to try to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Let's talk about this portion. We've met Priscilla and Aquila, and they're from Rome, they, they, at this point, we've already seen, according to, according to Romans, Priscilla and Aquila were already Christians when Paul met them. They'd already heard the gospel. And in AD 41, Claudius, the emperor at the time, banned Jews from gathering together. And then in AD 49, he ousted them altogether. He banned Judaism. And they were just kicked out of the city. So these were, in a way, political, religious refugees who had made their way to Corinth. And Paul meets with them. They practice the same trade that he does. In tent making, you often had to do some leather working. And so they had, they had this in common. They had, this, they, they had this, this shared trade. And Paul was of the particular conviction that he would plant multiple churches and he would subsidize himself through tent making. But then he would encourage those churches to provide a way to pay for the pastors that he would help train and appoint or encourage the elders to appoint. 
And he even would chide churches when he would return to them for not offering him a financial gift. He's like, I pride myself on not taking anything from the church, but you need to do this so that you can pay a pastor so you can earn his living by the gospel. That he, those who share the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, he's going to emphatically point this out to this very church. He prides himself on subsidizing his own way as a bivocational pastor, as we call it today. In rabbinic tradition, rabbis were encouraged likewise to have a trade that they would use to subsidize their own lifestyles. But Paul, in speaking to this very church, would chide them if they didn't offer to pay him something. He, was, he would happily reject it, but he'd be like, offer it to him anyway, so I can shoot it down. You didn't offer me anything for me to shoot down. And so he would bop him on the head, and the, at least in the theological sense. Bop. <laughs> that's, first, that's, my, that's my impression of 1 Corinthians 9. Bop. <laughs> you didn't offer to pay me. He'd speak the same way to the church at Philippi. He'd speak the same way to other churches and other points in his epistles. And he would draw upon this teaching in Deuteronomy that sounds at face value, prima facie, as though it were for livestock. Like, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. And as Paul teaches about this, he says, do you think it's for oxen that God is concerned? Meaning, this was about providing for your pastor who provides for your church. So as a bivocational pastor, he would make his own way and he would get the church in budgetary shape such that they could have a pastor whose full attention was on the church. He had this in common with Priscilla and Aquila. Some of it involved leather working, it involved, it in, it involved uh, a, a great deal of skill and, and engineering, which is pretty cool. And what I love about Paul is that he didn't view them as competition, but they would work together, they would collaborate. They had the kingdom of God in common. And I'm personally grateful, if I, you know, when I see Priscilla and Aquila in heaven, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna offend them, I don't know if it's possible to offend anybody in heaven, but I'm glad they got kicked out of Rome because they met with Paul as a result. They were refugees, victims of religious persecution, believed in Jesus as the Messiah, practiced tent making, met another tent maker, and as a result will become a part of his team. In the highest quality of the ancient manuscripts, they're named four other times in scriptures. Five other times if you include one scripture whose historicity could be questionable. They're named multiple times throughout scripture and they're always named together. Aquila is a dude. Gotta clear that up. <laughs> uh, it, sounds like, it sounds like I'm nitpicking, but also the name ending in A, for, if you speak Spanish or some of the other, uh, uh, some other languages, you might hear the suffix A and think this is a, this is a girl's name. All right? This was not a Seattle definition of marriage. This is Paul's definition of marriage. For more on that, see Ephesians 5 and Romans 1 and First and Second Thessalonians, and Colossians. Just read the whole Bible. So Priscilla is named first. That's what's fascinating, because typically within the hierarchy of society, you'd name the man first, and then the woman second. Have you guys ever wondered which Jesse you're naming when you say Jesse and Jesse? <laughs> if you spell it out, that'll reveal which one you think of first. If you must choose one of the Jesse's Campbell Choose the one who's ministering to our kids. She is the better of the Jesse's Campbell by far. Could she hear me in the lobby? <laughs> Priscilla and Aquila did ministry together as a team. Now, when Jesse and I were dating, I was a youth pastor, and I also had this side business, and it sounds funny, <laughs> drumming. <laughs> that was what my bachelor's degree was in. That's what I did professionally. 
And I, I started this small business publishing music and, and recording for labels and things like this and, I, and, and teaching drummers, teaching middle school drummers and high school drummers and coaching them to get college auditions and teaching drum lines and teaching them how to do this stuff. And so that was, uh, the, the church that I started at was very small. I'd just been hit by Hurricane Ivan and couldn't afford to pay me very much. I mean, peanuts, sometimes literal peanuts, Jesse, here, you're peanuts. And so I had to do my own tent making. I had to start a business from scratch and I, I would write my music and sell the rights to it to other, other drum lines around the country and I, would, I, would, I started a small studio to teach lessons and that studio grew to like 35 kids. Some of those kids got scholarships, leveraged that to become the instructor for the local high school, leveraged that to start a parent organization to recruit from the middle school. Pretty soon we had more drummers than we knew what to do with and they were doing really well. It was really, really fun. I loved it, but I was insanely busy. <laughs> I was ridiculously busy. When I was a bachelor, Oh man, I loved it. I just never stopped working. Between that and my student ministry, which I was full-time as a pastor, I ex they expected full-time hours and they got it. I would stay at the office till 10 o'clock at night. I mean, I didn't have anything, anything else to do, you know? But then when I got married, suddenly I was like, oh man, I gotta have, I gotta like prioritize family. <laughs> you know, when baby Austin came along, 18 months after our wedding day, I couldn't keep the kind of hours that I, I couldn't, I couldn't travel as much as I was traveling. I had to be there for, for, for my kids. And so when, when Jesse and I, uh, when, when Jesse and I were first married, we had this bivocational approach to ministry. And it was remarkable how the two of them would interplay with one another. I mean, she worked at Chick-fil-A, she was a supervisor, all right, so you know she's a Christian. And she would help cater some of my drum lines meals. So she was gifted in that regard, but when we were first married, we, even when we started dating, it's weird to be dating as a youth pastor because you're dating, if you're a youth pastor and you're dating, it's to answer the question, are we supposed to be married or not, okay? Quick side tip, that's a great goal for a relationship, all right? If you're a Christian, especially if you have purity, purity as a priority to you and you're, you're hoping to be married one day, if marriage is not even in the equation, all you're doing is risking your purity for no reason. So we, we set out a goal for our relationship, which was to answer the question, are we supposed to be married or not? That way, even if she dumped me, there's no way I was gonna dump her, I mean, obviously. But that way, if she dumped me, we still succeeded because we answered the question. The answer would, to that in that scenario would be no. Mm. <laughs> now, we answered the question, we protected our purity, but she had to draw some clear boundaries. When we came to that threshold, we'd been dating for a while, and I knew, I knew, I didn't want to date for long. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to start a relationship and I wanted to be married within a year, all right? And I, uh, we were comparatively young. For the culture here, uh, I mean, Jesse was 21 when we got married. And, and uh, when we moved to Orlando, which is a, a culture from everywhere, people looked at us like we were crazy. And I was the youngest dad at all the birthday parties by three decades or more. But in our culture and where we grew up, that was normal. Okay, like if you didn't get married by 22, people started asking uncomfortable questions. And so I wanted to go on a date. I wanted to go on our first date and I wanted to be married a year after that. I had this timeline. Jesse got impatient with that timeline because if I'm honest, we both knew we wanted to get married three months into the relationship. But that's what happens when you protect your purity and you're intentional. You know that what you're trying to do is answer the question, are we supposed to be married? Now, along this time, I knew that I, knew that I wanted to marry her. I hadn't brought it up here because I didn't want to seem like a psycho. So I waited a little bit, but I knew, okay, it's time for the students to meet her. Now this time, my, my student ministry started off with four kids in it, 
right? Like that's how it began. And by the time we grew to like 12, that seemed to be the maximum number of students that I could disciple. Have you ever heard of that before? One person discipling 12 others? Me neither. But I needed help at that point. And I, 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 needed, I needed women to disciple the young women in the ministry. And I, was, I, was, I, was, I brought it up strategically. You know, we would, when we would spend time together, we'd always go to Starbucks, and we'd go to Starbucks alone. That way we couldn't compromise our purity. Even when my small business bought a house for us, when we were engaged, we would never be there at the same time alone. She would furnish it. She would pick it out. She would drive out. I would come in and assemble the furniture. She would come back in and then arrange all the accoutrements. And while we were dating, I knew that it was time. I wanted her to meet the students. And then all the girls hated her at first. And it took a long time. But one day, when we came back from accountability time, I opened the door to the student ministry building, you know, the old chapel, that's like the universal place where the youth group meets, <laughs> the oldest building on the property. And I opened the door, and I saw nothing but mascara, and they were like, shut the door! And I shut the door, and I was like, I think that they had a breakthrough in there. And uh, when Jesse was honest with me, she's like, look, I know that you're still recruiting your heroes, that's what I call my first team. I called them the heroes. That's why I wanted them to be the, the heroes. And uh, when I was first recruiting the heroes, she's like, I know you're still building your team of heroes. I asked God, give me 25 heroes. We'll blow the doors off this place with a $0 budget. You know, and, and God did it. It was incredible. But she's like, I gotta be honest with you. I am not gifted in student ministry. Okay, I know you're thinking about Priscilla and Aquila, but I'm not gifted in student ministry. Like, I'll help you, I'll serve alongside you, but my two giftings, my two callings are in kids' ministry and in illegal global missions. I thought that was the most fascinating combination ever. Either the safest form of ministry or the most dangerous form of ministry, <laughs> nothing in between. And she was forthright about that. She was honest about that. And so when I was a student pastor and I knew God was calling me to be a lead pastor and churches would approach and ask if I was interested in being their lead pastor, the question would always come, okay, so what is your wife going to do for the church for zero extra pay? And I was like, she's going to be my bride. That's what she's going to do. She's my bride. There's no biblical office for a pastor's wife. It's reasonable biblically to apply to her the same standards of the deacon's wife in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but there is no biblical job description for the pastor's wife. She grew up as a pastor's kid, and so she saw this, she saw the effect that they would have on her, on her family growing up, and so she knew about the Priscilla and Aquila thing, and she called that out pretty quick like when we were dating. She's like, I know you're thinking Priscilla and Aquila, Jesse and Jesse, it seems meant to be, but I'm not gifted in student ministry. All right, I'll support you while you do student ministry, but my gifting is in kids ministry or illegal global missions where you get arrested and or killed. Those two things. She helped plant an illegal church in a country I can't name on camera. Incredible, the hottest thing I've ever seen in my life. But I love the fact that she was forthright with me. I love the fact she was honest with me. And so in our own way, we've imitated Priscilla and Aquila. Because you guys notice this when we host an event, it's always... Jesse and Jesse's house. <laughs> it, it blesses my soul to be able to do ministry together. And what I found was that she was strong where I was weak. And I knew this as a confirming sign that she was to be my bride. That the two of us were more effective for the kingdom of God together than we were apart. If you're more effective for the kingdom of God together than you are apart, then you are a picture of Christ and the church. You're like Priscilla and Aquila. Now, 
We're going to see more from Priscilla and Aquila as we continue in the text. Pick up with me in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, now why did he wait until Silas and Timothy had arrived? much Much of ministry involves pouring into teams, equipping others, counseling people individually. Right? If, you're, if, you, if you think about a church that is going to grow, then much of it has to be devoted to pouring into others and equipping them for ministry. Otherwise, your church won't grow past 12 because that's the maximum number of people that one person can disciple well. It's about 12. If you want the pastor to disciple every single member of the church, great. Have a great church, all 13 of you. But what Paul would do is come in and equip others. He's already recruited Priscilla and Aquila. Now, when, when Silas and Timothy are there, he can then focus on what he's primarily gifted in, which is preaching the word. And so they arrive, he preaches the word, he's testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. This is his modus operandi throughout the book of Acts. We've seen this, uh, we've seen this with the Bereans, we've seen this in multiple cities, we're seeing it again now in Corinth. He would begin with the synagogue, salvation is first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. Pretty soon he would get kicked out of the synagogue and then seemingly cite that as a rationale for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Now that is going to catch up with him in, later on in the book of Acts. It's gonna be the reason why the Sanhedrin wants to literally tear him to pieces because they couldn't stand the idea that this man who so perfectly articulated the story of Jesus as the Messiah using the whole Old Testament as his proof, you're gonna see that later on in the text, would then go bring that to the Gentiles because the Jewish thinking is like, we are God's chosen nation. We are God's chosen people. And that's true, but what was the covenant for since the very beginning to bless all nations? And it was prophesied that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Amos said it, Isaiah said it, God said it in Genesis when making the covenant with Abraham in the first place. So he begins in the synagogue. When he approaches a Jewish audience, he uses Jesus's messianic status. He'll begin with Abraham. He'll begin with the prophets. He'll begin with, uh, he'll begin with messianic prophecy. He'll begin, at one point, we saw him earlier in the book of Acts, begin with the story of King David and this prophecy over King David, whose star is at the center of Israel's flag today, that you would have a son whose throne would never end. And he says, this is Jesus. This is Jesus who is from the line of David. But when he would speak, when he would speak at the original Mars Hill, <laughs> He would speak to them. They had no idea who the Messiah was. They didn't even know who King David was. They had no idea what the name Abraham meant. So he would begin meeting them where they were. He would take a kernel of truth from what they believed. In that case, you built this altar to an unknown God, and that's true. You did mess a God, the only God. And then he would draw from that kernel of truth a bridge to the full gospel, Now, this sounds a little bit, at first, if you don't complete the passage, it sounds a little bit like the seeker-sensitive movement that the church has used in the, perhaps in the late 80s in Southern California, spreading to the rest of the the U.S. throughout the 90s and and even into the mid-2000s. The seeker-sensitive movement was, look, affirm what people believe, take out all the weird stuff, don't say words like repent or sin, definitely don't mention hell, talk to people like they're dumb, and bury repentance from sin in the fine print. The result was massive numerical growth with no spiritual depth. What Paul would do is actually bring it full force, 
to then call people to this one God whom you missed, the one true God, he calls everyone everywhere to repent and he's coming to judge the world. That's where Paul would have flunked out of seeker-sensitive seminary, right there, when he shares the most important part of the whole story. So Paul speaks one way to Jewish audiences and another way to Gentile audiences. This is consistent with what we saw in the Gospel of John. John was writing to, what was it, Jews or Gentiles? Come on. He was writing to Gentiles. He was writing to Hellenists, students of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, who taught Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world, whose whole philosophy was missing the logos, hence the opening words of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Logos, the word. Now, who was Matthew writing his gospel to? I'll tell you this one. That's Jews. Because he begins with Abraham. He begins with what his audience initially would understand. They all know the name Abraham. I once led an Orthodox Jew to Christ with the gospel of Matthew. He didn't want to open it because he was taught as a kid, don't read the New Testament. That's a manual on how to persecute Jews. And when he actually sat down with me and I opened up the gospel of Matthew, just two words in, he recognized the name Abraham and he pointed at it. He's like, I know that. I know that name. He's like, yeah, this is, this is a Jewish book. <laughs> and he starts with Abraham, establishes the genealogy in the Hebrew tradition to then lead a line directly from Abraham to Jesus. So John opens his gospel to the Hellenists with the Logos. I got your Logos right over here and his name is Jesus. Matthew begins his gospel to the Jews with Abraham and a genealogy going straight to Jesus. Paul, when he's speaking to a Jewish audience, would argue Jesus as the Messiah. When Paul was speaking to a Gentile audience, as in the case of the Areopagus, he would begin with the kernel of truth in their altar they had built to an unknown God. So watch his, watch his, mo uh, watch his mode of communication change, watch him code shift, if you will. While he's in this Jewish audience, he knows they know who the Messiah is and prophesied to be. And when he's with a Gentile audience, he knows that they don't know who Abraham is. They don't know about Messianic prophecy. And so he changes his approach. God has been using this for millennia. He's been using this for millennia. When we get to our evangelism training in the series after next, you're going to have the same ability, I hope, to be able to adapt given your audience. When I share the gospel with someone who is from a strictly Orthodox Jewish background, I'm gonna use the gospel of Matthew. When I'm evangelizing the majority of the population in the Seattle area, I'm gonna use the gospel of John. You know what I should do? I should teach you guys the gospel of John. That way you'd know what to say and you could bring, oh man, that's gonna be good. Mark, write that down for me, I gotta remember that. You see what I'm doing? This is why we're doing this. So Paul goes to, goes to the Jews, goes to the synagogue, preaches that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verse six. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes. It's a sign of protest. See Luke chapter 10. And told them, your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. He literally goes one door down, same street. He goes next door to preach to the Gentiles. Do you notice what he said to the Jews? He says, your blood is on your own heads, I'm innocent. 
Now, he couldn't help the fact that they began to blaspheme God. Blasphemunton is to, is to call something evil the work of God, to accredit to God that which the devil did. And this, is, this blasphemunton is considered the sin that will not be pardoned. I think that's a misnomer to call it the unforgivable sin. Rather, it's the sin that will not be forgiven because the person who commits it will not repent and make Jesus Lord. And so this blasphemy was to hostilely reject Jesus. In the original Greek context, it almost has the idea of making an obscene gesture to this presentation of the gospel.